Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, Coming this fall, the launch of the research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. This week, we're heading to the high desert town of Susanville to sample some of the most gourmet food you can find in Lassen County in a community college cafeteria. And we're going to meet the chef inspired by the flavors of his childhood in Palau. Where I grew up, it's always fizz, fizz, fizz. Every day we would have uncles come in with fresh cats of the day. We'll also visit the foggy coastal city of Pacifica to learn about a little-known World War II incarceration camp for Japanese Americans and how one man's diaries leave us vivid clues about what life was like there. Food abundant, though often too greasy, and powerfully seasoned with garlic. Supplies were freely given, such as toothbrush and toothpaste. I'm Sasha Koka, and you're listening to the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, hi, Brooke. Morning. You guys wanted to go for here. It's 8 in the morning, and the Lassen Community College cafeteria is already busy. Besides cranking out breakfast for students... Bacon, pancakes, scrambled egg, and cheese. Okay. Cafeteria workers Brennan Tamol and Kathy Rotola are also cooking for an event they're catering on campus later today. They want, like, a fine dining lunch, so... We're making some tri-tip and some baked chicken and mashed potato, asparagus. Plus a parfait of toasted angel food cake, whipped cream, and a berry sauce Brennan whipped up last night. That looks delicious. That's reporter Lisa Morehouse taking on the tough assignment of trying homemade brownie bites with cream cheese filling. It's like 8.30 in the morning, but I'm 
already eating dessert. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's great. I didn't mean to ruin you. <laughs> no, you, you ruined nothing. <laughs> For her series, California Foodways, Lisa's been traveling the state, interviewing farmers, restaurant owners, people who deliver food to the hungry, people who make frozen burritos, even grow coffee. But she realized that even though there are so many cafeterias in our state, and tech companies, and prisons, and hospitals, she'd never reported on one. So she brings us this profile now of Brennan Timol. He's a guy who never takes his apron off. He spends all week cooking at the cafeteria and all weekend cooking with family and friends. And as Lisa found out, in both kitchens, he draws on his culinary school training and the food he loved to eat growing up in the Pacific Island nation of Palau. The town of Susanville in the northeast part of the state doesn't have a ton of restaurants. It's small, about 16,000 residents, and just under half of them are people incarcerated at the two prisons. The closest big city is Reno, Nevada, 90 miles away. So Brennan and Kathy say when they have a special catered event here at Lassen Community College, they try to make it special. Last gravy, gravy, beef, chicken, asparagus, dessert. That's it. Brennan's worked with Kathy here for more than 10 years. Where he can excel, he does, and where I excel, I do. So we're, we balance very well together. She's self-taught with 30 years of experience in food service. Brennan went to culinary school and worked in restaurants in Reno. Before going into food, he thought he'd study design. And you can tell, he has a real personal style. He's wearing a bright Hawaiian shirt under a charcoal gray sweater, earrings in both ears, his hair braided and tied in a knot. In the kitchen, he specializes in beautiful presentations and experimenting beyond a stereotypical cafeteria menu. It's like his desserts, I mean, he makes them really fancy. He's the only one here that makes fried ice cream. <laughs> one other thing that's Brennan's domain in the cafeteria is seafood. Today's lunch special? It's a seafood platter. So we have uh, calamari, some shrimp, codfish, and I'm gonna make a pokey, like a Hawaiian dish. He learned how to cook seafood growing up in Palau. Where I grew up, it's always fish, fish, fish. Every day we would have uncles come in with fresh cats of the day. His dad prepared sashimi, taught Brennan to sear tuna and make soup. So fish soup, pork soup, chicken soup. His mom preferred making biscuits and gravy. She helped Brennan with the first thing he ever cooked, cupcakes for his kindergarten graduation. As a teenager, if he was going to the beach with friends and they weren't eating chicken wings, they'd grab bento boxes. Rice and short ribs, fish and a side of kimchi. If you picked up on a few different food traditions going on there, you'd be right. This, it, it's a small island with a lot of uh, different culture in it. That's Motare Niratmab. Most people call him Mo. He's a community elder and a student advisor here at Lassen Community College. Like Brennan, he's originally from Palau. It's an island group close to the Philippines and Guam. We have people from Bangladesh, we have people from Philippines, we have people from Indonesia, China. 
For hundreds of years, Palau was colonized by Spain, Germany, Japan. After World War II, it was a U.S. territory. It became independent nearly 30 years ago, but has an agreement that Palauans can live and work in the U.S. while the U.S. maintains a military presence on the island. In the mid-1970s, Mo was in middle school, and he remembers how the United States impacted the Palauan food system. United States bring a, uh, they bring a USDA food, and they drop them on the, and when you go pick up big ham with sugar and all this. Mo says stores started carrying spam, bread, chocolate, and that changed how people ate. People don't snack papaya, don't snack mango anymore. It's like tochiroll, you know. He says around the same time, the first Palauans came to Susanville on the recommendation of a Peace Corps volunteer. A few years later, in 1981, Mo came to join a cousin. He says, imagine this skinny island boy landing in San Francisco, getting on a Greyhound bus. It took him more than two days to get to Susanville, and he was unprepared for the January weather. He'd never seen snow before. And I was wearing a sport shoes and a a Levi and a t-shirt. There was five feet of snow here. I I thought I gave him to the wrong place. He was out of his element, failing all of his classes the first semester. But he survived and then thrived. After graduating, he got hired as an academic advisor supporting international students at the community college. He says some Palauan students stayed in Susanville, got jobs in fields like forestry, and brought other relatives over from the islands. Brennan Temol, the cafeteria cook, came here more than 10 years ago to be closer to his wife's family. Now, the community is big enough that local grocery stores stock island foods. I find that out when I go shopping with Brennan. Yes, he's cooked all day at the cafeteria. Now he's prepping to feed his family. Yeah, we can go to the Asian Isle right here. He heads to Reno when he needs specialty items, but even here he can get cassava root and taro. At home we go to the farm, that's the root. We pull it out from the ground or the garden and then we clean it off, we take it home, peel it off and start boiling. He lingers at the clams he likes to cook with coconut milk and the squid he grills, but picks up tuna. I think this is good. Great. Well, let's meet up, everybody. I'd love to meet okay. folks. Yeah, right. this is my cousin, Alec. Hi. Hi, Alec. The next day, I go to Brennan's house. Uh, Jaden. Hi, Jaden. Can you say hi? Hi. Hi, Jaden. How are you? Where I meet about 10 family members who get together every weekend. Uh-huh. Ooh, something smells good. Yes, we're starting stuff. Brennan's preparing a Palauan-inspired meal with help from his family. All right. All right. So, what are we doing? There's taro boiling on the stove. You want to boil it more? pork tenderizing in an Instapot, raw fish ready to be sliced into sashimi. He starts peeling cassava root. But in Palau, we call it diogang. And frying whole small fish that have been lightly marinated. We like to eat it with the bones because we like to suckle the eyeballs and all of that stuff. Then he sears tuna, medium rare. Tuna with the furugage, a Japanese rice seasoning. Oh, those look so good. Brennan puts the dishes in beautiful bowls or restaurant-quality platters lined with lettuce leaves and garnished, plated professionally. Plating my food and all of that stuff, yeah. I do it for my family, too. Oh, my God, it's gorgeous. You can paper towel. I'll just put it over here. Give me a, pa- give me a piece of paper towel. 
Even his wife, Aline, wipes a platter before taking it to the table. It's just cleaning up. Oh my God. You too? Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learned from him. Yeah, he always has to present it right and plate it right and look pretty. There's hot sauce that came straight from Palau and mayonnaise. See, if we didn't have mayonnaise, we'll send nobody somebody. Eats. Yeah, nobody eats. We're going to send somebody to the store to buy mayonnaise. That's how crazy mayonnaise is to us. All right, let's eat. Yeah, let's eat. Let's do it. Brennan's cousin made the pork dish and it tastes like adobo to me. So I ask about the ingredients. Right, what's the major flavor in this? He says, love. And mustard. Love, he said love. What are you trying to say? He's joking, but that's what I feel here. Love and pride. This is delicious. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, thank you. We're happy to show what we do, Palauans, right? When I first heard about Palauans in Susanville, I thought these places seem like two different worlds. Palau's a tropical island. Susanville's landlocked, high desert, there's snow on the mountains. And the population is mostly white. But spending some time with Brennan and his family, I learn Palau and Susanville are not different in the ways that matter to him. Everybody knows each other. That made me feel happy for raising my kids here. He can walk to the store, to work, to meet up with friends. He sees colleagues all around town. He cooks and eats with family every weekend. I feel like this is Palau to me. It's a second home to me. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Susanville. head to the laid-back Northern California beachside town of Pacifica. About a year ago, a woman who lives there named Katie Chikowski was scrolling around on Facebook when some photos caught her attention. Well, they were black and white photos of large, I would say barn-like buildings. Um, like It looked like an army base of some sort. The pictures she saw were shared to a group for Pacifica locals. And the buildings in them looked kind of like dorms, but they were surrounded by high fences. Turns out she was looking at a place where Japanese Americans were incarcerated in Pacifica back in the 1940s, a place called Sharp Park Detention Center. And I'm thinking, I didn't know anything about this. This is horrible. This was right in our town. Uh, you know, why didn't anybody tell us? That question prompted this next story from our friends at the Bay Curious Podcast. Aditi Banlamudi set out to learn more about the Sharp Park camp in Pacifica and to try to find out about some of the people who spent time there. I didn't know anything about Sharp Park, so I drove down and checked out the spot for myself. Maybe there was something written on a plaque or a sign nearby that other people could read. The park sits between the Pacific Ocean and the rolling hills of the coastal range. 
Back in the 1940s, the prison sat where an archery range now stands. It's all overgrown with trees and shrubs. I looked all over the property and couldn't find any clues about Sharp Park's history of mass incarceration. No old buildings, no commemorative plaques, nothing. Yeah, maybe the thing to do is to step back a little, because I think there are fundamentally two different uh, roundups of Japanese Americans, uh, and Sharp Park is definitely one part of that story that's different from kind of the better-known part. That's Brian Nia, the content director for Densho, an online encyclopedia dedicated to the experiences of mass incarceration of people of Japanese ancestry across the country. So what happens basically is from the 1930s, like for a full decade before the outbreak of war, various government agencies, particularly the Office of Naval Intelligence, the FBI, begin to surveil the Japanese community. Since the early 1930s, Japan had been invading China, first with the Manchuria region in 1931, and then slowly extending its control to other regions in the country. The United States government was worried about what Japan would do next, so the FBI began to secretly investigate and keep tabs on every Japanese resident in the U.S. And so by the mid-30s, they've got lists of people that are refined as the 30s go on. A few months after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, those lists were put to use by the government. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which allowed the U.S. military to start methodically forcing people of Japanese descent into detention centers. Meanwhile, the U.S. government encouraged paranoia and xenophobia. Japanese fishermen had every opportunity to watch the movement of our ships. Japanese farmers were living close to vital aircraft plants. So as a first step, all Japanese were required to move from critical areas such as these. In Northern California, some Japanese people were first sent en masse to Tanfaran, near the San Francisco airport. It was one of the largest so-called assembly centers in the state. Some people would spend time there before being transferred to more permanent prisons, like Tule Lake near the California-Oregon border, or Manzanar in the Owens Valley. But then there were camps like Sharp Park in Pacifica. The people sent there were specifically targeted by the government because the FBI considered them, quote, highly dangerous. But as Brian Nia says, they were really just community leaders. So it was Buddhist priests, it was Japanese language school teachers, newspaper editors like my grandfather, people who were, you know, officials at community organizations, whether cultural organizations, economic organizations. While reporting out the story, I got in touch with Kimiko Mar, who runs a nonprofit called Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, which creates mini documentaries about this period of mass incarceration and the experiences people had at the camps. Her great grandfather, Tajiro Baba, and his son, Shigeru Baba, were held at Sharp Park before being transferred to larger prisons. They arrived at Sharp Park at 5 p.m., March 30th, 1942. Tajiro and Shigeru were strawberry farmers. Kamiko is still not sure why they were targeted by the FBI and sent to Sharp Park. The closest she's ever come to an answer are from records that say Tajiro once donated $2 to the Japanese military. According to her research, the men were picked up by police one day and separated from their families. They had no idea where they were going, how long they were going to be gone, what was going to happen to them. And so that's got to be really stressful to just be put places where you're like, I don't, I don't know how long I'll be here. 
I don't know what's going to happen. The rest of her family, including her mother, who was just a baby at the time, were taken to Topaz Camp in Utah. Tajiru and Shigeru eventually joined them and were held there until the end of the war in 1945. Kamiko gets angry when she thinks about what her family had to go through. Even though they were Americans, so proud to be part of their adopted country, it wasn't enough. It's almost as if when you come here as an immigrant, you almost have to disavow your native country. Like, you can't be proud of your native country because that's being disloyal. When I first started digging into this story, I found it really difficult to get any first-hand accounts of what Sharp Park was like. That's partially because people weren't held at Sharp Park for very long. They were usually transferred to more permanent camps and reunited with their families rather quickly. But it's also hard because most of the people held at Sharp Park were older, more established members of Japanese-American society who aren't around anymore to share their stories. The only account I could find was from a set of diaries written by a man named Yamato Ichihashi. Yamato was about 16 years old when he immigrated from Japan to the United States on a student visa in 1894. There was a lot of racism, particularly towards Asian Americans in the Bay Area at the time. He attended Lowell High School, then Stanford, and finally Harvard, where he got his doctorate degree. He ultimately accepted a position at Stanford, teaching international relations and Japanese studies. Dr. Gordon Chang, a Stanford professor now, has spent a good part of his career studying the life of Yamato. He may have been the most esteemed, or certainly one of the most esteemed members of the Japanese-American community nationally. He was a Stanford professor. According to Chang's research, Yamato thought of himself as an American, He even named his son Woodrow, after President Woodrow Wilson. And he often looked down on other Japanese Americans who didn't make as much money as him or held tight to their traditional values and culture. He considered himself certainly of the elite. Most of Yamato's friends were white professors at Stanford and other prestigious universities. When the war began, he publicly condemned the Japanese military for starting conflict and started purchasing $100 U.S. war bonds every month. Around May... Six months after Pearl Harbor, Yamato and his wife, Ki, started seeing signs all around the Stanford campus, instructing people of Japanese ancestry to report to a designated spot with only what they could carry. When they showed up, they were taken by bus to the Santa Anita racetrack, just outside of Los Angeles. They would spend the next three years living in concentration camps, without freedom. After they were shuffled to different camps around the state, including the Tule Lake facility in Northern California, Yamato was told he alone would be transferred back to the Bay Area, to Sharp Park. I faced an unforgettable incident. An FBI agent named Robert Hart came to the room at 2.30 and told me that I was under arrest. I asked what was the charge, and he replied, no charge, as far as he knew. I was told to pack things I wanted to take with me, but I had no spare things with me. Yamato was separated from his wife and son for two months while he was at Sharp Park. According to his diaries, there were tall iron net fences that surrounded the camp and about 10 army barracks within it. I was pleasantly surprised at the makeup of this camp, particularly after my experience at the crowded Santa Anita Center. 
When I reached there, the flowers were in full bloom. The sight was delightful to the eye. Because Sharp Park specifically held Japanese Americans with supposed influence, the U.S. government wanted to treat them carefully. Again, here's Brian Nia. The U.S. government understood that the treatment of these men had bearing in how treatment of American prisoners in Japan would be treated. Each room housed eight people. Compare that with the barracks at the Santa Anita facility, which housed 10 to 12 people per room. Sharp Park held about 500 prisoners, compared to the thousands of people at other camps. Here's an excerpt from Yamato's diaries at the time. Treatment was satisfactory, food abundant, though often too greasy, and powerfully seasoned with garlic. Supplies were freely given, such as toothbrush and toothpaste. Sheets and pillowcase were changed every Monday. Blankets were clean. Yamato was held at Sharp Park from late August to late October, 1942, before reuniting with his family at Tule Lake. Yamato had written his entire life, and Gordon Chang believes Yamato was writing these diaries partially to make sense of what was happening to him in a way he had always used to process the world. But it was maybe also to collect evidence of what he went through. And he accumulated a substantial portion, but this uh, this material became more spare as time went on, uh, less rich because he's sort of reduced to uh, just an attorney and no longer a scholar. Over the next three years Yamato was incarcerated, he grew more reclusive, more aloof. A camp director tasked with keeping eyes on him wrote that he was definitely well-respected by others in the camp because of his position as a scholar and university professor, but he was distant. Most people do not seem to know just how to take him, and he, in turn, having had little contact with Japanese during his 40 years at Stanford University, seems to have difficulty in relating to them and has a tendency to hold himself aloof. He appears to be an impersonal observer of the passing scene rather than a participant. Again, here's Chang. I think he, he, he very much felt this was a challenge to his dignity and his prestige, and he tried to carry himself, recreate sort of a, a world in which he was uh, highly regarded. But in a prison camp such as that, he's just a number. In 1945, when mass incarceration of people with Japanese ancestry finally ended and the Ichihashis were released, they weren't enthusiastic about returning back to the life they left behind. Anti-Japanese sentiments were still high, leaving the camps felt dangerous. And they didn't have many resources to restart their lives. Yamato was a completely changed man. After he got out, he, he very much was, uh, I see, as a broken person, as, as many of the older Japanese Americans were. They just had a very, very tough time physically, mentally, emotionally. By the time Yamato returned to Stanford, the university was already looking for his replacement. Professional career had been crushed. He was no longer an active faculty member. His marriage had fallen apart. He was disaffected with his son. So to me, those are all indications he was in a very sad situation. The way Gordon sees it, the experience had lasting effects on the Ichihashis, as it did for most other Japanese Americans. There's this uh, long history in the United States of those from Asia being held as somehow, somehow perpetually foreign. Yamato worked so hard to assimilate to a country where white men held power. Attending the best universities in the country, getting the highest degrees, getting a prestigious job, 
having lots of white friends, and even naming his son after an American president. But it wasn't enough. The government still considered him a foreigner, a dangerous foreigner. And that classification destroyed him. That story was reported by KQED's Aditi Bandla Moody. By the way, as she reported that story, she learned that a few years after the end of the war, the Sharp Park incarceration camp was torn down. The iron fence, the barracks where Yamato slept, the dining area where he ate the garlicky food, even the flowers he admired. There was a rumor that the stone steps from one of the buildings were still there, but when Aditi visited the park, she couldn't find them anywhere. Right now, nobody's really lobbying to commemorate what happened in the park. Not local governments or advocacy groups. And while local schools do teach students about Japanese incarceration at Tanveran and other camps around California, there isn't any specific mention of what happened at Sharp Park. Aditi's story was originally reported for KQED's podcast, Bay Curious. Thanks to Katrina Schwartz, Sebastian Mignobuccelli, Olivia Allen-Price, and Otis Taylor Jr. for all their help on that story. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amanda Font, Stephen Roscone, and Jessica Carissa. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks again for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Silicon Valley Community Foundation, supporting KQED reporting on early childhood policies and practices around the state. Learn more at siliconvalleycf.org. Stanford HealthCare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration. On the web at schmidtocean.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.